Welcome to Classical Ideas. This is Greg Soden. Building bridges in this world is one of my main inspirations for keeping this show going year after year. I love hearing about communities, people, practices, traditions, and the flow of life across the centuries that keep humans of today connected to their ancestors of the past. Religion is one way these connections remain vital and alive across many generations of human civilizations. The work of who is building bridges and who is not is a topic of conversation that fascinates me to no end in 2021 society in the United States in particular. One such bridge builder is Kashif Sheikh. Kashif Sheikh is the co-founder and president of Pillars Fund, which he co-founded in 2010 to strategically organize wealth within Muslim American communities and support American Muslim civic institutions and leaders building a more just and equitable society. Under Kashif's leadership, Pillars has invested more than $6 million in Muslim community organizations and initiatives to build collective power and transform what is possible for Muslims in the United States. At the heart of Kashif's career in philanthropy is a dedication to promoting racial equity and creating opportunities for Muslims and people of color to tell their stories through art. In this episode, we talk about everything from the internal diversity of what it means to be Muslim in the United States, his thoughts on Muslim art and entertainment such as Rami on Hulu, and what it means to combat anti-Muslim fundraising organizations in the U.S. I loved talking to Kashif about Pillars Fund, and if you want to follow his work, follow him at twitter.com slash K-M-S-H-A-I-K-H. You can find Pillars Fund at pillarsfund.org or on Twitter at pillars underscore fund. So without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Kashif Sheikh. Kashif Sheikh, welcome to Classical Ideas. Thank you so much for having me. Um, if you could just spend a moment and introduce yourself to the audience, however you see fit, that would be fantastic. Yeah. Um, hi, everyone. My name is Kashif Sheikh. I'm the co-founder and president of an organization called The Pillars Fund. It's a nonprofit based out of Chicago, but works nationally in lifting up and amplifying narratives of American Muslims. Uh, we're really proud of the work that we've been doing. It's a philanthropic organization that supports emerging civic leaders, artists, all sort of um, uh, who identify as Muslim, really shifting the ways that the, the country and the world really perceives Muslims to be. So I'm delighted to be here. I'm excited about this conversation. And um, thanks for having me. You're so welcome. Uh, so I do want to learn a little bit about your life. You and I have interacted for a long time um, on my other podcast that uh, that you and I have chatted about many times, but I am so fascinated by the work that you are doing with Pillars Fund, but I want to know a little bit about your, your backstory, about your life. And I'm wondering if you can talk to me about your upbringing. Um, and I'm curious about, you know, family, religious affiliation, things like that growing up that kind of like set you off on the path that you are now on, which is amplifying and lifting up Muslim artists. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I was, I was born to a Muslim family, uh, Pakistani immigrants. I was, I was born in New York city. My parents immigrated to New York from Pakistan in the late seventies. Um, so there was this really big influx of, immigration in the U.S. in the 60s and 70s. And, and I, I was born 
um, in New York, but uh, predominantly grew up in Cincinnati. So very much that story where my uh, mom and dad came here, did school, sort of, you know, you know, uh, uh, got jobs. And my dad ended up getting a job uh, in Cincinnati. And I moved there when I was in fourth grade. Uh, and that's really where I spent the majority of my uh, childhood. And you know, being um, a Muslim, uh, being a Pakistan, the son of Pakistani immigrants, and then sort of moving, I, I went from as a kid kind of being in Queens, New York, where it was incredibly diverse and sort of like a, a, a city atmosphere to, I, I did a, a brief stint in Michigan when I was a kid to Cincinnati, uh, to a pretty much like kind of like a middle class, upper middle class kind of white suburb, which is really kind of where I grew up. And mm -hmm. Being um, one of the only Muslims in my high school, um, in, you know, the community that I was a part of, there was a, you know, a, a decent amount of Muslims in Cincinnati, and there was a, a community there, but my family didn't sort of completely interact um, as much as, you know, with, with that community. And so I was kind of, you know, a, a bit of a, you know, loner and, and uh, isolated in that way. Um, and so it was, and it was an interesting way to grow up because my, my mom was a very religious woman. My mom passed away about seven years ago, um, but she was a very religious woman and, and comes from a religious family. And so Islam was a really important part of our childhood, but mm. in, in, you know, in really interesting ways, because my dad also was not that religious. Mm. And so I kind of grew up in this like really interesting dual household where my dad was never anti-religious by any means. The, the tenets of God and um, um, sort of the universe, you know, and being humble were, were really important aspects. Uh, but my mom was a bit more prescriptive in the way that she understood religion and the way that she understood Islam particularly. So, you know, we grew up kind of doing those things that a lot of young Muslims do, reading the Quran and Arabic and sort of learning to pray and all of these different things. And, and I would be lying to you if I didn't say that I was a bit of a rebellious kid, those <laughs> kind of practices were never terribly exciting or interesting to me. Yeah. Um, so, you know, like it was like, I was, a, I was a little shit sometimes. Like, you know, I didn't, I didn't really <laughs> love having to sit down with my mom and like read the Quran and Arabic and um, all of these things. But I will say that kind of having that upbringing, my, you know, it was, I, I think there's a lot of stereotypes about sort of Muslims in the US, mm -hmm. um, and particularly around sort of the way that they practice and the strictness and this and that and I can tell you that like, you know, my childhood was was really interesting, because uh, yes, you know, Islam was a really important part of my mom's life and sort of the way that she was raising us. But it wasn't, you know, like she also created a lot of room for us to breathe and, and really kind of created space for us to kind of push back. Uh, she didn't love it. Don't get me wrong. Like, I, I don't mean to paint like anyone who knows my mom knows that like she wasn't this person that was like, oh, question everything. Like, you be you. No, like she was like, question everything as long as you end up back here. Yeah. Um, so, um, so, you know, and, 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 you know, God bless her. Like, I, I really do think that, you know, in some ways, you know, my mom's view of the world, like, I think some people might call it narrow and I certainly wouldn't call it narrow because my mom just had such a deep belief that like, you know, I tell this story a lot, like one of the most sort of like um, jarring moments, memories of my life was I was probably like maybe in like seventh grade or something like that, eighth grade. Now keep in mind, I kind of grew up in this uh, religious home. Um, uh, 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 my dad was 
like I said, he wasn't super religious, but my dad also worked all the time and wasn't really around. And so my, my mom was really the one that was raising us. But I remember I was like watching television one day and I kind of like, there's a, you know, there's another love of mine, which is comedy. I love stand-up comedy. And yeah. part of the way that I grew to love stand-up comedy was I was watching this, you know, I was watching TV at like seventh grade or something like that. And, and a George Carlin special came on and uh, you know, George Carlin has this really great, I'm going to butcher the joke, but the, the joke was something to the effect of, you know, how, um, you know, the, the idea of God's mercy is really, um, you know, contradictory to this idea. Like how can someone that loves you so much also punish you so much? And, and, but, but to me, the, what was like, he was a, an avowed atheist. And I remember to me, the thing that would like blew my mind was that it was the first time atheism was, was really like, um, like I'd understood it. I was like, I, cause I, I lived in a world where not everyone was Muslim, but the idea of God was like, everyone believes in God because it's mm -hmm. like, you know, I couldn't fathom a world in which like, what, like, well, how did we get here? And it was the first time I'd heard someone sort of question the concept of God. And it mm -hmm. was, it was so like, I didn't know what to do with it. Like, it was like, it was scary. It was interesting. Uh, but it was kind of like this really kind of this gateway to be like, oh, there, there's a world outside of the way that we grew up. Mm. And I, I ultimately, as I got older, and I still do as, you know, embrace the faith that I grew up in, and, and I practice it in the ways that I want to practice it in. And not all of it always sort of, you know, makes sense to me. But I, I really found that moment as a kid, uh, when, you know, something so that was just unquestionable was questioned, yeah, really shook me. So, um, so, you know, like, and then that led to, you know, a whole high school career of being, you know, just trying to pursue the truth and trying to question and, and, and try to figure out what life meant. And, um, if any of your listeners have figured that out, I'd love to know, cause I still haven't figured it out, but, um, but that's kind of, a quick snapshot in terms of like, you know, how I grew up. Did you, did you have siblings too? Yeah, I did. I have one sister. She's two years younger than me. Um, and we're very close. And so, you know, we, but, but, you know, we're close. Um, but like as kids, you know, we just fought a lot. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, Kasha, something I'm really interested in is I'm curious about the way people's spiritual practices change throughout the course of their life as well. And you mentioned a lot of things showing the internal diversity within your own home of your varying spiritual practices, which I think I, I often see as being a stereotype uh, within many religions that this is what so-and-so believe. But what happens is if you ask multiple people within that same, you know, single like religious community, uh, the same question, you'll get several different answers. So I'm seeing that within just your own home, which yeah. is really interesting. And I'm wondering if you've gone through periods of your life where your spiritual devotion or religious practices have waxed and waned uh, where you've gotten more serious and less serious and like what those kind of like phases were like for you growing up. Oh my God. Yeah. So, so much. So I talked a little bit about my childhood where, so, you know, my, my high school days were really not spent around Muslims. Mm -hmm. So I, I was spent mostly in, you know, white communities that were not, uh, Muslim and that, you know, like I just didn't have that connection. And for the most part, because I didn't know anything, I was, I was pretty comfortable in that world. I, I grew up, you know, uh, like I said, in Cincinnati, I had like, I was a pretty well-adjusted kid, had friends, all those different things. 
uh, I didn't really like, you know, Islam was just this thing. In fact, it was like really funny because it's like, I, I didn't really know what it was. I just knew it was our religion. Like, I just yeah. knew that, like, I was Muslim. Like, I knew that. But, like, because I remember, like, I had this, like, really, uh, really close crew of three or four friends who lived in my neighborhood, still friends with them to this day. And one of them, my friend Jimmy, I'll never forget this moment. I was probably in, like, eighth grade, maybe something like that, ninth grade. And we're sitting there, we're hanging out. And, and he was always, like, a very intellectually curious kid. And he said something to me. He's like, you're Muslim, right? And I was like, yeah. And he's like, so what does that mean? Like, what is a Muslim? And I was like, yeah, well, um, like, so we believe in Islam. Like, you know, like it was like, the, I was just like, I actually like couldn't tell you what it really was. Mm-hmm. Um, I just, you know, and, and it was like, I remember like going home that day being like, oh, I don't think that's like, like, what is that? Like, I should know some things, but like, that was my high school, like my kind of like growing up. And I just, I, I, it just wasn't an important part of my life. And then I kind of like, as many people do kind of went through this existential crisis in college. Like when I, when I got to college, I remember I had this massive identity crisis where I looked at my life in high school and I was like, man, like, I don't have any Muslim friends. I don't have any, I'm, I'm Pakistani, as I mentioned, I don't have any Pakistani friends. I don't, I don't have that life. I don't have any of that connection. Mm. And I felt lonely. I felt really, really lonely. So I did this really funny thing where like at the time, I don't think it was that funny, but I, I, I just left that life. I woke up one day, I moved away to college. I didn't tell any of my friends. I just cut that part of myself off and was like, I want to build a new life. I want to move and I, you know, want to find other Muslims to be around and, and hang out with. So my college days, like the, the, the couple of years I was in college, were really intensely different than anything I'd ever experienced because it was all this quest of me trying to identify and be religious and Muslim. And, and, and what I now realize that it was less around me trying to be religious and mm-hmm. more me trying to find my place in the world and my place, like, who am I? Like, what does it mean to be Muslim? What is it? How do other Muslims practice? What does it mean to be a part of a community? Cause I didn't have any of that. And so like, but it, the way it manifested itself as like a dumb 20 year old is being like, well, I guess I'm just going to start praying every day. Like I'm just going to start praying five yeah. times a day and I'm just going to start doing these things. And I always joke about that period of my life as like, a glove that I was like trying to force on that didn't quite fit, but I was like, I was determined to put it on. And, and that is kind of what I was doing at the time um, is I was trying so hard to relate to this faith. And so that was definitely a time when like, if you had come, if you had met me at that time, like my friends, you know, had, who had, from my high school had like seen me, they would have been like, who the hell is this guy? Like, mm-hmm. because I was trying so hard to fit in somewhere. And I spent a lot of my twenties sort of trying to do that same thing as I spent a lot, I'm 38 and I spent a lot of my twenties trying to sort of carry that forward and be like, who, like, what does it mean for me to be Muslim? And it wasn't until I really started pillars and, and started to figure out like that you can practice and, and the religion and, and these things are so deeply personal and you can practice them in the ways that you makes sense to you that concept didn't exist in my brain in my early 20s because i was mm. like well you either you either pray or you're not muslim like you, right. you either do this or you're not muslim like 
that's just, there was, you know, and that's kind of like a function of being young. It, it, you know, you do operate in sort of these binaries where you're like, Hey, like it's either all or nothing. And that's kind of what I was doing where I was like, well, I was like doing these things. Um, I, I wasn't doing these things, so I must not be Muslim. So now I got to start doing these things so I can be Muslim. Uh, so it, it has been, and I, you know, to be honest, I still haven't fully figured it out. And, but I feel more comfortable in my own skin in the way that I practice it and understand it in the way that I sort of acclimate my identity. I think I've, I've, I've gotten way better at that, but I, I think that it was, it, it has been in, you know, as, on the, you know, on the spectrum at sometimes traumatic, it's sometimes completely free flowing and fun, but it has been a lifelong journey for me to, you know, not try to attain religiosity, but try to attain what it means to be Muslim. And, and that's, that's, you know, it's, it's been challenging, but, um, but it, it, it's, it's, it's been the story of my life. Yeah, well, as I mentioned to you earlier, a lot of the people who listen to this show are scholars of religion. And one of the things that is often described within the scholarship is the internal diversity of religions around the world and the way that people's practices vary over time. And so I'm hearing you talk about your experiences, which is awesome because this is your lived experience. Whereas whenever I talk about this with a lot of guests on the show, they're talking about what they found within their like ethnographic research. And you're telling me the exact story of your life. So like, this is like a fantastic, um, you know, side story to a lot of the themes that I've touched on the show, but now I get it directly from you, which is really cool. Yeah. And I think that the thing about, well, thank you for saying that. And, and I love being able to talk about this because it, it is, it is my story and I love talking yeah. about it. But I, I, the thing that is so fascinating about what you just said though, is that that was one of the light bulb moments for me, you know, Islam, as you know, is verse like and and one of the I, I grew up in a Pakistani home and so even in my early 20s I was understanding Islam as sort of like the way that it was practiced in 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 Pakistan and India which is a very specific way and it wasn't until like I saw the world where I was like wow like Muslims who were born in the states like black Muslims practice it in a different way or when you go to Africa or when you go into Latin America where there's a growing population of Muslims like when you go into these different regions and you start to really see how um like Islam is practiced which is there's no themes that are somewhat universal but there's like different you, you sort of bring your own culture to it as well and that was really eye-opening because I realized that as I was trying to really figure out who I was I was I was practicing it in a very specific way that didn't fit well with me but part of the reason why it didn't fit well with me was because it's it's a religion that is so diverse in its in its tradition yeah. that to me the fun part is kind of learning about all the different traditions and, and trying to figure out and make sense of how it, you know, how you understand it. And that, and that was really important to me. I love that. Well, you know, before we get into what you do specifically with pillars, I'm curious what you wanted to do for a living when you were growing up. So you got up to the college years, like what, what did you think that you wanted to do? Yeah, I well, I had no idea what I wanted to do. I knew that like one of the things that I got really lucky about when I was a young kid was I, I figured out like something that I think saved my life, which was I'm wired a very specific way, which is if I'm not incredibly passionate and excited about something, I just won't do it. Right. And I won't do it well. 
And so that was a, it's, 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 it's a unique trait. I think other people have it too, but it's not universal because, you know, like there's so many people in my life who, you know, like they can, you know, they may not love something, but they can, you know, they'll do it and they'll do it well. My brain is just not wired that way. So I kind of like, it's funny because people are like, follow your passion. You'll be happier. I don't look at that as a way. It wasn't a pathway towards my happiness. It was a pathway towards my sanity because I wasn't going to succeed in anything yeah. else if I wasn't passionate about it. So I, um, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I kind of got really lucky. And we talked a little bit about this on, on the other podcast as well around the, you know, I, I fell into activism at a pretty young age due to the music I was listening to do the punk rock music that I was listening to really kind of was like a gateway into activism. So I kind of, when I got to college, I'd kind of like figured out that I wanted to do something that fostered some type of social good. That's as far as I had gotten was I was like, I just, I want to do something that just makes this world a little bit better. Um, I was, you know, I'm probably being nicer the way I describe it now. I was pretty self-righteous when I was like 20. Um, <laughs> so, um, and, and, but I just knew that I wanted to do something that was exciting and I was passionate about. So I kind of fell into the nonprofit sector because of, you know, having a mentor in college that kind of got me some internships. And, and to be honest, I didn't think that much of it. I just was like, all right, cool. This is kind of a good balance of, I can have a job that'll pay some bills, but I'll also kind of, you know, feel like I'm doing some good in the world. And so that's kind of how it happened. I, I certainly didn't have any aspirations. You know, I think the theme of my life is I've never really thought too far ahead. I've just mm. kind of like, look at the next thing and be like, all right, this sounds good. Let's, <laughs> let's go for it. Let's see where, where this goes. Yeah, I love it. Well, so before, uh, so I'm, I'm curious about your pre-Pillars professional trajectory as well, because I know that prior to launching the Pillars Fund, you worked at the Robert McCormick Foundation. You managed portfolios for like a variety of like Chicago nonprofits aimed at racial justice, poverty, and education. I know yeah. you developed s corporate social responsibility strategies for like the Chicago Tribune, the Blackhawks, the Bulls. I'm curious about a bunch of these projects that you sort of went through before you got into what you're doing now. Yeah, it's really interesting, right? Like I fell into all of it. Like I said, my, my first job out of college was um, at uh, the United Way of Chicago, which was like, again, I didn't know what the hell I was doing. I just sure. kind of got this job and was like, cool. And what had happened a couple of years into that was I kind of accidentally fell into philanthropy. I fell into, you know, my, you know, the, the job that really shaped my sort of uh, career was the McCormick Foundation, which is where I was at for seven years. And that was the first time I was introduced to philanthropy as a, um, as an industry, like as a, as a field, you know, like the idea that I was like, just giving away money felt like the most ridiculous, it still is like the most ridiculous job on the planet. Um, and, and I sort of fell into that and, you know, all of those things were just a function of me kind of taking the things as they came. Like at McCormick, I was, yeah, I was in charge of doing things like, you know, build, you know, helping create grant strategies for the bulls and stuff like that, which is hilarious. Cause I'm not even like a big sports fan. And like, <laughs> yeah. I somehow was like in charge of like helping, you know, disseminate millions of dollars for like the Chicago bulls and the white Sox, et cetera. And so it was a, it was like a, an interesting job, uh, but it's, it's kind of like what it's, it's what helped me understand philanthropy. It was kind of the, the first time that I really understood that this was a field. It was a place where you could, you know, do some good. It was a, you know, it was a career path, et cetera, et cetera. 
Um, and, and that's, you know, pillars was actually born and, and, and I know you're going to talk more about it and you'll ask more about it, but just, you know, pillars was actually born at the McCormick foundation because it was a volunteer project for me. It was like something that like, you know, like that itch to kind of give back to the communities that I came from mm-hmm. kind of resurfaced in my late twenties and my mid to late twenties. And I kind of felt like I was doing this really cool work at McCormick and, but I still felt somewhat disconnected from the Muslim communities that I grew up with. And so that's kind of pillars kind of started as this thought experiment that, you know, one thing that you'll, you'll sort of see is that there's this theme of Muslims in America and sort of creating spaces of their own in the United States and, and sort of really grappling with what it means to be Muslim. Yeah. And there was this, you know, uh, you know, part of what we haven't talked about, there's so much to talk about, but part of what we didn't talk about that informed all of this was I was 18 when 9-11 happened. Yeah. So, so like, it was like this really, really weird place to be when you're 18 years old. Um, so you've lived like, you know, a, a long life and then all of a sudden everything changes. And that sort of stayed with, it stayed with me throughout my twenties and pillars was really kind of born out of frustration of, the, the what I had seen as the images and the stereotypes of Muslims on screen was just so opposed to it's like I was like meeting some of the coolest people in the world and who were Muslim and I was like there is a disconnect here and, and how do we sort of bridge that disconnect but yeah it all kind of was born out of this um, the work I did in philanthropy. Mm, gotcha. What does the name, where does the name, the Pillars Fund come from? What is the significance of the name? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, um, there's five, you know, in Sunni Islam, there's, there's five pillars, you know, of the faith. And I, I, I happen to grow up Sunni, but, you know, pillars at the organization represents all denominations and all types of, you know, it, it's not meant to, um, that's not meant to sort of uh, draw a line in the sand or anything like that. But in, in Sunni Islam, there's five pillars uh, of, of the faith. And one of them is, is charity and zakat, as, as, as we call it. And so given that the organization was really meant to be a charitable organization that was going to be uh, 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 philanthropy that was giving money away, um, we thought that pillars, you know, at the time we were just like, you know, I'd be, I, I, I would love to tell you that there was like this like long drawn out thought of name, but I think, you know, the few of us that started it were just like, we need a name, we need a name. And like, I think I threw out pillars was cause I was like, how about pillars? And they were like, yeah, that sounds good. Let's do it. And, and, but, but there is significance to it. Um, I'm curious about the idea of the organization, uh, like what it was based on with you and the other co-founders. What was that dynamic like with you and the other folks who started this? Well, we were really inspired by Jewish Americans. Like we were really inspired by the, the philanthropic infrastructure that, uh, the Jews in America have like so thoughtfully built. Awesome. And, you know, like the, if you look at sort of the institutions that uh, Jewish communities have built, it's really impressive. And it's really something to be in awe of. And um, a lot of my early mentors sort of were um, older Jewish people whose like parents and grandparents were involved in building sort of a Jewish federation and sort of like uh, the, the different Jewish groups in the, in the U.S. And so one of the things that I thought that pillars, one of the things that I'd recognized in sort of my travels was there really wasn't 
a Muslim equivalent. There was really no philanthropic organization at the time that was a couple of things that was based in like the US because there was this one notion that like Islam is like this foreign thing when that's just could be further from the truth. You know, we, we, we talk often at pillars that, you know, one third of enslaved Africans that were, you know, brought against their will to the United States were Muslim. And so literally like Muslims built the White House. There is this long, rich tradition and history um, you know, the, the the most famous and easy one to swallow is the, you know, Thomas Jefferson's, you know, Quran and, and all those different things. But there's this like long history of, of, of Islam in America. And so really the idea behind the organization was, um, you know, how do we build a philanthropic institution that supports, and this was the most important part, was this emerging field of civic leaders. Because you know, to, to give your listeners a, a sort of a quick, quick kind of like, you know, uh, Islam in America 101, basically, if you look at, you know, like if you look at the demographics of the of Muslims in the U.S., we skew very, very young. So like, the you know, like uh, Muslims, the large majority of Muslims at 9-11 were very young, like, mm-hmm. you know, like, and so what that actually did was it, it politicized an entire generation of Muslims yeah. to build civil rights organizations to build nonprofits to to do all of these different things and so by the time i had sort of thought about this idea with my co-founders in 2010 the idea was there was this burgeoning field of civic muslim leaders that were building and running really cool organizations that were uniquely american so they were like they were not religious organizations. They were like they were inspired by the values and the traditions of the faith. But really, they were doing things like I, I think of my friend Rami Nashibi here in Chicago. He started this amazingly incredible organization called Iman Inner City Muslim Action Network. And Rami actually and I started Pillars together. And you know, when you look at the work that uh, Rami does, it's really incredible. It's like it's here in the south side of Chicago. They do so much different work in like they do community uh, neighborhood revitalization work. They do work with formerly incarcerated people. They do have a health clinic. They work in underserved populations. It's a Muslim, quote unquote, Muslim organization that is really serving the community. So you yeah. had this like. You really had this like, which I know today doesn't sound that novel because you're like, yeah, of course, like, and, and you know, Catholic groups have done this, Jewish groups have done this. It, it was not that like, it's not a novel concept, but there just wasn't that in, in Islam in America, partly because they were so young. And when you look at, you know, Muslims in America, they spent a lot of the 70s and 80s and 90s building places of worship. mosques and Islamic schools, which like was, you know, incredible and sorely needed, which is why when you go into different neighborhoods, I grew up in Cincinnati with this like massive mosque, like these are all what our community elders did. But this newer generation of people, my generation of people were like, that's awesome. And we totally stand on the shoulders of that. But what about, you know, what's happening post 9-11? What about these people that are being targeted? What about Muslims that are being targeted or being put in Guantanamo or the Patriot Act, you know, we're, we're, we're targeting these, these people? What about those people? And so Pillars really what it meant to be and what it sort of turned into was a institution that supported financially uh, these organizations that were coming up because they weren't on the radar of a lot of people. And so Mm. that's, it was really meant to kind of be a kind of like a for us, by us type of organization that has 
now morphed into something much bigger than I think any of us imagined. That is amazing. When you mentioned the progression of this as well, you started part-time as a volunteer and then now are doing it full-time. What was that transition like from getting it to be small to making it so that it can like be your main gig in life? Like, how did you make that happen with that full-time transition? Yeah, honestly, like, man, it was, it's, it, I, I still sometimes look back at it and don't know how the hell it all happened. Because, yeah. you know, when I started it, that it was, that was never the goal. The goal was never to kind of build an organization that was going to, um, you know, be my full-time job. Like the goal was just to be like, well, I'm on this trajectory where I get to do some cool stuff. And like, now I know how to direct funds in an effective way. So maybe I can give back to the community that I come from. That's ultimately what the goal was. And I started it with uh, a hand, about five other people, uh, all of whom were kind of a little bit older than I am. Also at that time, we're kind of working in Wall Street or working in Silicon Valley and sort of started to like have some money. And that's how the initial seed idea came was that they were like, hey, listen, like we're already giving away like 25, 30, $40,000 in charity a year. Instead of sort of being disparate about it, maybe we come together and all of us put that $25,000 into one sort of central fund and we figured out the best ways to sort of uh, disseminate that money. That's really the central premise of Pillars. Mm. And that's how we started it in 2010. It was me and five other people. And I, I, we, we were able to convince this funder out in Seattle who was interested in this topic to put in $100,000. So in year one, we had 200, I think we had uh, overmatched it. Or they gave us a $100,000 match. So we had $225,000 to give out in year one, uh, 2010. That was ultimately like what the goal was, was like, wouldn't it be fun to be able to just kind of have a pot of money to give out every year? And, you know, we did that for five years. Um, and we kept growing like in year five or year four or something like that. I think we had like $500,000, which made no sense because we weren't even really an organization, but what it told us, yeah, it was hilarious because like, we were just like, but we were, we were getting these kind of young, wealthy philanthropists. They were really enamored by this idea. They're like, yeah, this makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And so what, but by year four, what we had realized was, oh, like, there is there is something here like we're sitting on something because you know if we're growing this and this is a part-time gig and it's it's uh it's something that we're kind of just doing on the side um imagine what we could do if we actually kind of put some real resource into this and 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 build something and so one of those day owners my co-founder and i he kind of called me one day and, and he, you know, he's, he's really the visionary of all of this. Like he saw this before any of us saw this. And I remember he called me one day and said, listen, this pillars thing that we've been working on for a couple of years, like, I think there's something here. Like we got like, you know, 10, 12 people giving us $25,000 a year. And we don't even like, you know, we're like sort of a, you know, just a fund at, at, at a community foundation. Like we should really kind of put some effort into this because I think there's something here. And I, I, you know, I was like, yeah, I think there is something here. And so we worked on it for about two years, um, really building out like what it could potentially look like. And even then, I didn't actually have a, an interest in in running it uh, full time. I just wanted to like kind of build an institution that was going to kind of do some cool work. And it wasn't until that premise, we'd sort of taken this business plan of pillars, which was build a central 
institution that can support emerging civic leaders. And then we later expanded to artists and, and things like that as well. But, but what happened was is that we got, we somehow got seed funding to actually launch the organization full time by some of the biggest foundations in the world. And so, you know, you know, when Ford and Kellogg and, and all these organizations were like, hey, you're onto something, we'd love to help you start this and, and give you some money to do it. That's when, you know, shit got real. We were like, okay, like, let's do this. And that was 2016. And that was the, the day, you know, that was the moment when my co-founder said, uh, I remember he said this to remember we were on the phone call and he was like, I think you have to run this. Like, I yeah. think this is what you have to do. And I, I remember thinking like, whoa, like this is not, you know, like I, I, I you know, I, I you know, where I kind of came to even, you know, we talked earlier about sort of where religiosity and this and that. And, and I'll be really honest with you is that where I have sort of landed as an adult is like Islam is a really important thing in my life. Like I am very proud to be Muslim. Like I'm very proud. It's an identity I wear very proudly. I love being in community with Muslims. It's one of the most joyous things in the world. But when you talk about my, about my personal practice, I'm not someone that sort of practices it sort of traditionally on a day-to-day basis. You know, like I'm not someone that you're going to find at the mosque. I'm not someone that is going to be praying. That's just sort of not who I was. And so there was a, it was an enormous, I was very intimidated by the prospect of starting and launching and running an organization that was sort of catering to Muslims in the U.S. And it wasn't until I had lunch with a friend of mine when I told her, I shared with her my reservations of wanting to do it. And she said, that's exactly why you should do it. Because what we needed in the landscape at the time was not a religious institution. We needed an institution that was going to support and help uplift Muslims of all stripes in, yeah. in the U.S., and we needed to, you know, this institution, and I'm a believer that you need religious infrastructure in communities to keep them, you know, to uphold those communities. And so this is not me disparaging, you know, mosque and Islamic schools, but we also needed institutions that were somewhat agnostic on the actual theology so that we could support this new generation of Muslims and this new generation of civic leaders and artists, et cetera. And so I was really nervous to do it because I, I also know one thing about myself is I can only show up to these things like fully authentic and fully who I am. So I didn't want to pretend I didn't want to like have to code switch on like in a job. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Okay. I mean, so something that's really interesting here is that you mentioned that you were 18 when 9-11 happened. I was 17 when 9-11 happened. And that was the first time that I have a memory in my life of hearing about Islam was that day, which yeah. is the worst. <laughs> it's not way. like the greatest way to find out. Yeah. Right. Exactly. So I'm thinking about somebody like me who is out there in the world learning about this for the first time in the worst way. And then you have this entire set of memories pre that and post that as an American Muslim who has your version of it. And I think about how important an organization like yours is for somebody like me who had, you know, was introduced to this major faith tradition in the worst way. And if you're amplifying these various and diverse voices within American Islam, you are inevitably going to have a ripple effect outwards to people like me who, you know, grew up with harboring some possible resentments. Does that make sense? 
Oh, it makes, well, first of all, thank you for that. And I think it makes all the sense in the world in, in, in a lot of ways, you know, you know, I would be lying to you to say that if I, that I started pillars to sort of cater to people like you, mm-hmm. but what I do, what I, cause part of, to be honest with you, part of why we started pillars was to give our own community. We were traumatized yeah. was to give our community that space, but what happened. And I think one of the most amazing sort of effects of the organization is exactly what you described, which is it does sort of uh, put in the forefront and really amplify the voices of such a diverse community of people that like someone like yourself, because like what you just said is like so powerful. Like think about it. There was an entire generation of people who were exposed to one of the world's largest religions, Yep. you know, in the light of 9-11. So that your, your first exposure to it was one of the biggest and most tragic events in U.S. history. Yep. Um, and the perpetrators of this, you're like, oh, they're this faith. Oh, by the way, they're they're Muslims. And by the way, by the way, by the way. Yeah. And that's that's really, I mean, you know, like even for the people who sort of like, like even like, let's use you as an example. You know, even as someone like yourself who then went on to study and understand all of these different things that had to have had an impact on your psyche at 17 years old, because you could disown that and be like, well, I know not all Muslims are like that, but when that's all you've seen and it's tied to this like crazy tragic and horrific act, it's hard for you to not sort of see Muslims otherwise. It's a catastrophe. No other reference point. Yeah. It's a, it's a generational catastrophe for people our age. You know what I mean? Because when you're in high school and then think about all the people who you and I were in high school with, who then went on to fight in the, like the, the invasions, you know what I mean? My, one of my closest friends, one of my absolute closest friends, uh, went off to fight. I remember having a conversation with him and he was such a good guy. He was a, a dear friend of mine and he ended up dying in Iraq and at 20 at 21 or something like that. And I still remember like, you know, having a conversation with him sort of asking him not to go and asking him not to do this. Um, And he wasn't going sort of as like rah, rah, rah patriot. He was going, he was like, I just, you know, he, he felt like his life was kind of off track and was like, you know, maybe this will kind of help, you know, give me some discipline, but yeah, like, what an insane time. I think I about that time. Like, it's funny because, you know, we're hitting the 20 year anniversary and it's this weird thing because it, it, it's almost like this traumatizing event that like you, you have, there's a specific generation that you can talk to. You and I can have this conversation because you know, you remember what the five years post nine 11 were, dude, yep. it was a weird ass time. Yes. Like really scary, really weird for everyone. But then think about what it was for me. Think about can't what even, it was for so many Muslims in this country. Um, you know, like I lost friends. I, yeah. I, you know, like was, you know, I, I told this story, like one of the most jarring things to ever happen to me. And I'll never forget. It was a couple of months after nine 11. I grew up in Cincinnati. I grew up in a really kind of like, I wouldn't say it was like, it was definitely not a liberal town, but like, you know, they were, they were cool. Like everyone seemed okay. And, and they were like, you know, no one, we didn't really experience any kind of overt racism or anything like that. So people were generally pretty cool to us. And I remember a couple of months after 9-11, we went, I grew up in Cincinnati. Anyone who's listening from Cincinnati will recognize we went to La Rosa's. If you're from <laughs> there, you know what La Rosa's is. And it was, we, it was a pizza. It's a, it's a local pizza place. And 
I remember I went there with my dad and my sister, like, you know, we would go all the time and I'll never forget this moment. But again, a couple of months after 9-11 and I, you know, we sat down and all eyes were like staring at us. And here's the crazy thing. When you, the, 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 the way that you, you know, the way that the media was like sort of projecting this image of Muslims as like the swarthy brown man with the beard. Like, first of all, my dad was like a tall, light skinned, beardless guy. And even then, because he, he wasn't white, he was sort of, you know, having these like looks. And that was like this moment where I was like, holy shit, like things are different because I, I it was so creepy being in that room. I, I've never felt so uncomfortable being anywhere. And it was, it was really traumatizing. Like my sister was in high school at the time. I mean, she was 16. And so she was a junior, I believe, when all of this was happening. And another story about what happened there was her teacher, well-meaning teacher was like, hey, you're Muslim. You should write in the school paper about what your experience is like after 9-11. In theory, sounds like a beautiful idea. In practice, a horrible idea because she wrote this thing about, you know, it's like a 16 year old. It's like, I'm Muslim and don't blame Muslims for this. It's like a 16 year old would write. And the school revolted. The school was like, you know, like, you know, they wanted that, like, you know, out of the paper, she, you know, like, people were like, not happy, like, dude, it was a, it was a crazy time, man. And then the, like, then your sister has to live with that. Like, just having, with that. you know yeah. what I mean? Because she was just, a, you know, we're just kids. Um, kids, you know, so, 16. Some, yeah, well, and something else I'm curious about is you are running this organization that actively invests in the talents of American Muslims. And I'm wondering about what the pushback or the opposition is like to your work, because surely there must be organizing for anti-Muslim fundraising organizations, right? I mean, tell me about yeah. like the the pushback or the opposing force that you are working uh sort of like trying to counterbalance does that make sense yeah totally well well so this is the way i always describe it no one wakes up one day and just hates muslims like right. that that doesn't happen right so when you when you start to like really get at the root of this attitude you realize this is a learned behavior and it's perpetuated it's an intentional behavior that is fostered and through systems that are enforcing this, right? So we talk, we're talking a lot about 9-11, right? So what 9-11 was really doing was it was perpetuating and it wasn't perpetuating just through popular culture, it was perpetuating through news media, the idea of like what Muslims are and who they are and what their motives are, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so when you think about the concept of pillars, the entire concept of pillars was really meant to sort of do two things. I think in its sort of earliest formation, it was meant to kind of combat, uh, which we've sort of moved away from. And I'll talk about that in terms of language wise, but like it was really meant to sort of combat these images that were so prevalent about who we were, et cetera, et cetera. And, and it was meant to kind of put out into the universe these really amazing and diverse depictions of Muslims doing really awesome work. But the, the, the forces that we were against were no joke. Like one of the things, so, so I, I tell this story to give you a sense of like, just how insidious and how deep this gets. And this story I think really demonstrates it. So in, in, this was like pre-Pillars days and maybe 2000, 
Oh man, I can't remember 2010, 2011. Your, your listeners might, you know, Google this and be able to tell me better at when this was. There was a really big controversy in Tennessee, in, in Middlebury, Tennessee, or uh, uh, what's it called? Uh, Murfreesboro, T- Tennessee, I think is where it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I know what you're talking about. Yeah, keep yeah, going. There was, there was this, this massive controversy about this mosque that they were trying to build. Now, what was weird about it was that it was like, you know, outside of Nashville, there had already been a mosque there. The community had gotten together like every other community, which was like, you know, as they get into some money, they're like, hey, we and the community's growing. We want to build a bigger mosque. And they've got the money and all that stuff. But somehow, you know, it's kind of like how we're seeing with critical race theory today is like the right is really good at sort of taking these things and holding on to it and being like, they're trying to ruin the world and blah, 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 blah. And like, they're really good at just like holding on for dear life and sort of pushing these narratives. And so, so at at that time, uh, the mosque controversy was really big. So like Tennessee became kind of like this epicenter of like this weird fight of trying to prevent this community from building a mosque, which was like, you know, like just such a weird thing to be happening. So anyways, you know, at my job at McCormick, I was, um, uh, there was a, you know, we were a big journalism funder um, and that wasn't my department, but like McCormick has been sort of a big, you know, funder of free press and everything like that. And so they used to do these things called journalism trainings where they used to, you know, host, um, you know, like um, different subject matters and journalists could opt in and talk and learn about the subject matter. And so one of the things because of Tennessee was they hosted one in Tennessee um, about, you know, for journalists covering that story, here's some resources, like, you know, get to know some Muslims, get to know the Muslim community, et cetera. Uh, I'm probably butchering exactly what the program was, but that's sort of generally what I was trying to do. And so my, my, my president at the foundation said, Hey, um, you know, we don't have any Muslims on that team, but I think you should go because it would be really good. I don't think it was tokenism. I think they genuinely were like, we don't like, can you like, just help us with this? And I was like, yeah, 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 I can do that. So, so, um, Oh yeah, I was the only Muslim on staff, so you know perhaps you know that was the bigger issue. Not uh, uh, anyways, but the so what so what happens is I go to Tennessee, and I'm there for two days, and the last day so it's a two day training, and the last day of the training they're going to do an open uh, like a uh, uh, the ACLU was hosting an open forum conversation about the mosque about like you know it was going to be like the aclu was hosting so you know it was at a university so we figured like hey like you know um you know like there it's going to be like a college event you know these college events like you go and like it's mostly people who think like you and you kind of get sit in a room and kind of get to wax poetic on these things and that's what you think it's going to be so we get there and all of a sudden i start to see this like influx of people coming in stereotypically who like, you know, are wearing things like, you know, American flag bandanas or American flag shirts and things like that. I'm like, this is weird. Like this isn't sort of the audience I thought was going to come out for this. And then it turned out that this event had become kind of public. And one of the, the groups at the time had publicized and said, Hey, we need to show up to this group because this is the group that's trying to like publicize and okay it to, to, you know, make this mosque in Tennessee. So they all show up. And they basically like, uh, like you know, come up and like create a ru- like they create a, a scene. They they're interrupting, they're yelling, they're doing all these things. And, and and there's this one specific moment that like really was sat with me forever. It still sits with me to this day. Is that I'm sitting in the front row and I'm watching this kind of. I'm very scared actually because I'm like, dude, I don't know what's gonna happen because there's yeah. a lot of anger in this room, and it, it was just really scary. And this guy gets up next to me. 
again, stereotypical. It's got sort of like a, an American flag bandana on or something like that. And he says, um, um, uh, what does he say? He, he, he gets up and he says something and, he, and he's like, he asks the moderator to explain this very, very um, uh, specific concept in Islam. It's like this, um, I, I'm, I'm actually like, I'm kind of embarrassed. I'm blanking on what it is. Uh, if I remember it, I'll remember, but it's like a very specific kind of concept in Islam, which, which says the following. In Islam, the preservation of life is, is very important. So basically, you know, generally it says like, if, if I have a gun to my head and someone says, drink this liquor or eat this pork, you say like, yeah, you can do it because you have to preserve your life. Like, you know, you know, don't die over this. And so, you drink, you know, and what they had turned this into, this entire right-wing narrative had turned into, well, Islam actually encourages its followers to lie. So you can't ever trust a Muslim because their faith says that lying is okay, which when you think about it is one of the most scary and brilliant things you can do because you can't combat that. Because if, I, if you say to them, well, no, that's not like, what are you talking about? Like, that's not like what we can do. They're like, well, yeah, of course you're going to say that because your faith tells you to lie. The craziest part about that was that concept. I remember, I didn't know what that was. I grew up in a Muslim household. I knew everything. And so it was an Arabic term. And I remember I called my mom that night and I was like, mom, like, what is, you know, uh, I, I'm so annoyed with myself that I can't remember the term, but like, I, they were, I was like, what is this? And my mom laughed and was like, how do you, how do you know that? Like, what are you talking about? And I was like, and she told me what it was. And I was like, that's so weird. She's like, yeah, it's like such an obscure thing that like, you know, like it's not even like a, you know, and that was a moment where I was like, holy shit. Like that's how deep this anti-Muslim, it's, it's not, it's designed. You have entire groups perpetuating sort of taking these cons and they're not doing it in a stupid fashion. They're actually like sitting through, pouring through the texts, taking things out and saying, Hey, their text is, is causing is anti-American. Their text is really kind of like they're not compatible with American values. And so when I talk about, you know, pillars, that's the type of stuff we're up against is the, these really, really sophisticated systems of oppression mm. that are no joke. Mm. Well, and you know, I, I read a BuzzFeed article interviewing you a couple of years ago. And in that article, you kind of shared some of these sentiments that you're just referring to. One of the quotes in the article that jumped out at me was when you said, Muslims are so beaten down right now. And it's kind of like, am I welcome here? Am I really welcome here? And in those moments, you need to create your own spaces. So I feel like that ties really well into what you're just talking about, that experience in that room of being very, very uncomfortable with these people whose active agenda is to cherry pick and identify specific things that they can throw into mass groups of millions upon millions of people's faces. And I'm wondering now, a few years down the line, like, you know, 20 years past 9-11, like we're in a totally different era now. And a couple of years after you gave that quote in BuzzFeed, and I'm wondering what the mood and what the atmosphere is like now with uh, yourself, the organization, and the people you work with. Tell me some some good things. What's going on? Yeah, I mean, I'll tell you, the thing that gives me the most hope in the world is young people, right? Like this next generation of people, their audacity is something that I could have never dreamed of having when I was 17, 18, 19 years old. Young people today demand equality. They demand 
sort of, you know, when you look at like, it's funny because like, you know, one of the big things in the news is the sort of tearing down of these statues. Listen, you and I knew that these statues were bullshit. You and I knew they yeah. were, you know, but we, I, I'm willing to bet that you and I weren't like organizing marches going just to like being like, hey, why are they there? Let's just tear them down. Like, let's just do that. And the, the next generation of people are just so much more audacious that I find and and I and I and bold and I really love that. So that quote is actually kind of funny for you to reflect, you know, for me to reflect on because it was, it was like almost five years ago. And a lot has changed because I, you know, like I think what's changed is like absolutely, you know, the idea, you know, we always say this thing at Pillars, which is um, we will never try to be the let us in. We are always going to be like, check us out. So yeah. come check out what we're doing. We are not here to knock on the door and like beg you to be like, you know, like, you know, Muslims are doing really cool things. We're like, yo, man, like Muslims are doing awesome shit. We are doing such incredible stuff. And it's kind of in your interest to check it out, see what's happening because it'll enrich your life. And that's how we've sort of approached it. So now I want you to tell everybody listening what people you're checking out right now, who you're excited about, what projects you're stoked on. Give us some names. Give us some projects. Lay it out for me. Tell me what we should be looking for after listening to this conversation. Oh my God, there's so many cool things happening right now. So like just on the on the, on the pop culture front, right? There's two shows that come to mind that I think are really, really amazing. And two shows that I'm like, man, I can't believe these shows exist in the world. The first is Rami Youssef. He has a show, show called Rami awesome show amazing, amazing show and and you know rami did something so amazing with that show which was he made such a specific show i watched that show i remember he sent me the pilot like before like he had even gotten it to to hulu and i had like sort of looked at the pilot and i remember he's like hey give me some notes or whatever you know just as like a friend and i was like i was like are people gonna get this because it's so specific like it's so specific to our culture and our traditions and you know kudos to him to putting out something that was both specific and universal so i i find that to be like a really awesome show the other show that is sort of less well known right now but i'm hoping it gets more popularity was i just watched a show on peacock called lady parts we are lady parts which you would totally dig okay it's an awesome show about these four uh muslim women who start a punk band in the uk oh yeah and it's awesome like it it really sort of like defies these stereotypes it's got heart it's funny um nida manzur who started this show who who created the show is brilliant um it and it, and it's it's also doing something that like i think not enough things have done which is highlight and and amplify the the voices of, of muslim women and this show is really phenomenal so those are like two shows that come to mind that nice. i would like completely uh recommend in terms of sort of what's happening that both have heart and also that both of those shows do one thing that i love 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 which is when you watch rami and there as you can imagine it's a pretty controversial show even within the community because you know there's a lot of there's a lot of sex there's a lot of you know there's all these different things but what the show is actually doing and and, and i really appreciate what these newer sort of shows are doing is that they're not that what what they're actually saying is like if you look at the heart of Rami, what that show is saying is that like Islam is beautiful, man. Like I am trying, I am a shitty ass person who is trying to become better and try and, and he's not trying to get Islam to like conform to him. He is trying to better himself. 
and, and the faith is that important to him. And whether you agree with it or don't agree with it, it's a beautiful idea because I think what you saw in the, the light of 9-11 and you saw this in like the, you saw this in like the big sick and things like that, which was, you, you saw a lot of Muslims and I, I'm not trying to like tear them down, but what you, you saw a lot of Muslims sort of being like, you know, Islam is like, you know, being Muslim, I'm Muslim, but I'm not like that kind of Muslim. Like I'm not the type of Muslim that like prays and this and that. And this new generation of people are being like, well, I am like, I'm, I'm a practicing Muslim and I make mistakes and I do shitty things. And I, I, and I think that is what's really exciting about this new generation of content that's coming out is that you're just seeing the nuance in a way that's also saying that's not conforming to these Islamophobic tropes, which is that, you know, uh, you know, like it's cool to be Muslim as long as you're not praying. It's cool to be Muslim as long as you're not religious. They're saying like, no, like that's absolutely not the case. So, so those are two that come to mind. And you know what's so wild about Rami as well is that I heard about Rami because a lot of religious studies professors that I know who have been on the show were assigning episodes of it in <laughs> yeah. their in their university courses. That's so great. Like it's a it's a show that made an impact in higher education as well. And I didn't know about the uh, the lady part show. Um, that's really sounds awesome. It kind of reminds oh, me of like it. a it reminds me like a British women version of Michael Muhammad Knight's Taqwa course. You know what I mean? Yep. Um, mm-hmm. That's really cool. Thank you for those suggestions. Um, I'm wondering about uh, any other um, like closing thoughts or like some of your plans for the next five or 10 years with the organization. I'm curious where you go from here. What do you, what do you got going on for the future that you're excited about? Yeah. I mean, I, you know, to me, the things that excite me the most is sort of really kind of these types of conversations, because it's one thing to do the the work at Pillars, which is really the goal is to sort of amplify and grow and scale and support these things, which is beautiful and that we continue to do. But to me, like what I get, what I geek out about is conversations about religion. Mm -hmm. I geek out about how people sort of take these traditions, these like, you know, age old traditions and implemented them into their own lives. Because, you know, I talk a lot about how pillars has sort of changed my life because, you know, not from a religious perspective too, because it's like, I have gotten more sure of who I am as a result of doing this work. Like, you know, like, for example, like, I absolutely like, I think that as a kid, I struggled with what it meant to be Muslim. I struggled with the concept of God. I struggled with these things and doing you know, the work at Pillars, I've really fallen in love with Muslims. Like I've fallen in love with this, this such incredible communities who are doing so much amazing work. When I see shows, when I see, uh, you know, leaders on the ground. And so what I would, you know, to me, what's really exciting about the future is a new generation. I hope Pillars can play a small role in sort of really lifting up and supporting another generation of change makers, because I, you know, the, the goal now is not to support art that is you know, so prescriptive that is saying like, hey, this is who we are. The goal is just to support Muslim artists. The goal is just to support Muslim leaders and just be like, hey, like so-and-so is Muslim. And that's not that big of a deal. Like you just sort of, you're sort of inundating the marketplace with really dope Muslims. Like that's ultimately the goal of what we're trying to do because 
our community has so much to give and so much to say. Um, and, and, you know, like, you know, we, there's so many things we haven't even talked about sort of the civil rights movement and how influenced it was by Islam um, and, and all of these different things. And so I think for me, you know, as I just hope that what we can do is foster more conversations about how the role that religion plays. I'll, I'll sort of leave sort of with this one story that like, probably really encapsulates my views and is, is something that I think about a lot. So, so my mom died seven years ago and my mom was a very religious woman and we didn't always see eye to eye. We, we certainly didn't agree on everything. But one thing that I knew, particularly towards the end, was that like faith was something that really gave her peace. Like faith was something that like, you know, she would often talk about, you know, going to God because, you know, she knew her life was limited. And so and I knew that as she died, and I literally was like, I held my mom's hand in hospice and watched her take her last breath. So it was, you know, it's it, that that's, you know, how how intense that was. And, you know, I and I, I know how much, you know, as difficult as that was, faith gave her that sort of a little bit of peace. And a week or two after I was, you know, after her passing, I was watching, I, I was flipping through the TV and Bill Maher came on. I hate Bill Maher, but he came on. So I just sort of like, I turned it on and I watched it. And he goes on this like 10 minute rant about how evil religion is, how detrimental it is and how awful and how it's like the bane of the world's existence, et cetera, et cetera. And there was such a visceral reaction that I had to that because I was, I was like, literally my mom who died, like found peace in her life because of faith. Yeah. And so for us to have these, you don't have to subscribe to these faiths. You don't have to, you know, you don't have to agree with them. You can think they're silly. You can think that you can think all of those things. No one cares. There's plenty of people who think, you know, my favorite conversation in the world was a debate between Mad, my friend Mandy Hassan and Richard Dawkins, yeah. where Richard Dawkins asks him, like, you know, you're a smart guy. You went to Oxford, all this stuff. You really believe that Muhammad, like, you know, on a horse went up uh, um, and, you know, uh, you know, went into the heavens. And, and Mandy's was like, yes, I believe in miracles. I do. Like, I absolutely do. And, and I was so like, whether you believe it or not, it doesn't matter because I don't even know if I believe it. But I love that there are people in the world that those stories give them so much hope. It gives them something. And so for me, that's what I hope Pillars can really do is sort of continue to create a space for us to have conversations and, and really kind of understand that faith can be a beautiful thing, whether you love it or hate it or don't like it or agnostic, faith gives people so much hope. And, and that's, to me, ultimately how I got comfortable in my quote unquote Muslim skin. So that's, well, that's where I'll leave it. Well, Kashif Sheikh, I am so delighted that you, whenever you and I chat, you bring your full authentic self into these conversations. It's so thrilling because like, I can just feel your energy. And every time I talk to you and converse with you, um, whether it's through Instagram DMs or on Zoom here, I, I feel like you're, you're just giving me all you've got to tell me about the things in the world that make you happy, that inspire you. And it inspires me in return. Oh, thank you. So thank you so much for spending this hour with me on Classical Ideas Podcast. It, uh, it matters a whole lot, the work that you're doing. And I'm thrilled that you were uh, willing to take the time to tell me some stories about what you got going on. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This was so fun. <laughs>